Hey friends, before the show I'd like to plug the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At their storefront, shop.terracottadistribution.com, you'll find a wide range of Asian DVDs and Blu-rays from Kim Kidak to Jackie Chan, from Ho Shao Shen to Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell, aka the Japanese Evil Dead. This was even put out on a limited run VHS, folks. New titles are being added regularly, and if you go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and enter the discount code POFN. 10 that's p-o-f-n-1-0 this gives podcast on fire network listeners 10 percent off at checkout the discount code is p-o-f-n-10 and visit shop.terracottadistribution.com for more and let's get on with the show Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Young and Dangerous 5 and the legendary Tai Fei. The fifth in the Young and Dangerous Triad Saga appeared in 1998, almost a full year after the fourth. And uh, the makers didn't see as many Hong Kong dollar signs by now in the box office returns as they were when they churned out the first three in 1996 alone. Most of the boys are back, as is the director and writing team of Andrew Lau and Manfred Wong, so as the series and the Hong Hing boys grow older, how does the quality of the series fare at this point? So find out as we discuss Young and Dangerous V, I suppose. Well, Young and Dangerous 5. And in 1999, the year where there was no Young and Dangerous movie. Its uh, prequel was 1998 and its concluding part was in 2000. But in 1999, someone thought it was a good idea to give Greasy Head nose-picking Tai Fei his grand spin-off backstory. So Anthony Wong came back because... He was a rather memorable, loud, but morally upright triad character in these movies. He's called Tai Fei. And he got his own movie called The Legendary Tai Fei, or in quotation marks, <laughs> Tai Fei. <laughs> it's like, okay, so it's, it's a, like an ironic uh, English title, The Legendary Tai Fei. Uh, we talked enough about him um, the, before, and the 10 Hong Kong dollar budget um, movie we were sort of referenced before in prior discussions so i think it's time to actually review the spin-off movie in full now that we're doing this coverage with the spin-offs in tow as well and my name is gonna be and with me to continue the coverage uh, to um revisit the movie universe and perhaps expand on his uh, experiences um uh, with the movie universe is paul fox of the resurrected east screen west screen podcast so uh, i've seen i've said welcome back before on your show because i've been on and welcome back to the world of podcasting uh, producing your very own <laughs> and to this one. Oh well thank you and thank you for having me and uh resurrected is a strong word to use uh, but <laughs> we are uh, trying to get things rolling again and uh once again uh, back to the young and dangerous well so this should be fun how unfamiliar as the rewatches felt for you, like, um, or did you spin the Young and Dangerous movies sort of 
a few years apart sometimes just to like hey i'll watch those six movies or has it been fresh most of these things i mean i i think with these later films uh particularly this one and i'm pretty sure born to be king there are bits and pieces that you know stick in my memory but uh, a lot of the characters a lot of the plot long since long since washed away with uh details from other things that were probably more important <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, maybe the first three stand out a little bit more in in your mind, especially uh, if if the cast was um, strong. Then, uh, I mean, that's why Young and Dangerous Two, for all its many many flaws, stands out because Anthony Wong acts up a storm, and uh, they kind of lost track of Taifei, I think, especially when his look wasn't um, the same in the subsequent uh, movies. The, the look actually had a lot to do with it because in in two, as you remember, they just went for for close to smell of vision as they could with Taifei. And he was such a um, carousel and anarchist. And in two, you didn't know where his allegiances actually lie. But then, as it turns out, he's an, he's on the right person to have around in the Hong Hing uh, Tribe Society. But um, they, they they really lost track of uh, Taifei, I think, uh, which is a shame. Because uh, I do like that combo. Um, and Anthony had a lot more to chew on initially and uh, then when he cut his hair in real life they uh, they lost taifei the day that taifei went <laughs> as i said as i said in my notes and i'm sure we'll get to i can't really fault him for i mean i think he still brings a, a certain level of charisma to the role but i mean you got to figure i mean when he first established uh, the character in young and dangerous two years prior he had that long hair I think it carried over into three and four but at a certain point he's doing other roles right he uh, he he's got to be versatile so at a certain point the hair's got to come off and I, at least i appreciate that they just let him go ahead with it rather than trying to stick a really bad wig on him <laughs> yes for sure uh, that's what they do to actors like frankie mm. they, they stick a bad <laughs> wig on him for his flashback segments in uh, portland street blues like uh, Young you. <laughs> okay, thanks. I'm just going to be here for 10 seconds, so it's fine. Uh, but yeah, we're going to talk of um, Anthony a, a bit more, of course, uh, as we talk of his uh, dedicated movie. But uh, in the meantime, we will, uh, we're going to do some contact information first of all. And this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. Our website is podcastonfire.com, where you'll find this show that covers Hong Kong cinema new and old. Uh, we try to do complete coverage at the best of our abilities but we, we spread out the complete coverage of things that's why we haven't done six episodes in a row of young and dangerous stuff which it, to be honest paul i don't like doing that i like to spread out the coverage to get to, to come at the series with fresh eyes especially if i didn't like a particular entry i would like to have some time off from from the hong hing boys and then come back to it with a fresh sort of combo so I, I was actually really looking forward to this episode because there was a fresh combo of the fifth entry and we got the Taifei movie which I know in my heart is probably not going to be good but I do like the prospect of teaming these two movies up so I don't know how you work you you could probably like do a six movie coverage of this and churn them out in uh, in uh, six days of podcasting and be happy doing so but uh, I, I like to spread out uh, spread out the fun otherwise there won't be any fun i mean you haven't lost track of the sort of series in your memory either uh, because we do these things months apart so you have not 
you, you, you didn't need to revisit any part to catch up on the continuity that's sort of uh, happening in Young and Dangerous 5, right? No, and I think it's it's been um, it's been a good pace, and it's allowed me because I don't think I watched them this close together when I initially viewed them. So seeing a lot of the connective tissue, especially with supporting characters like Sixth or Thirteen, and uh, Lace Two K, and some of the others, it's a bit easier to make sense at least of the Hung Hing organization as a whole. <laughs> I mean, it is. Uh, you don't uh, get lost in terms of who's the branch leader of uh, this and this. And um, so I do like that as well. So I wouldn't want to be the audience, especially in 1996, uh, that just, uh, <laughs> you know, finished Young and Dangerous 1 and then popped out with, uh, over to the cinema across the street that was already showing Young and Dangerous 2. Because I think there was an overlap between 1 and 2, or at least <laughs> overlap between 2 and 3. They were that successful, so they, they made them. Uh, but um, uh, that's a phenomenon, all right. Like, can you imagine that with, with Star Wars? <laughs> you finish the Empire Strikes Back, and they know money in the bank is uh, guaranteed. So, oh my god, that happened. When can we see the next one? Over there. <laughs> Fantastic. One hour. <laughs> exactly, run over. Uh, so and no spoilers, but uh, but yeah. As, as for podcast on fire, we cover Hong Kong cinema new and old, as I said. So check out the back catalog. We also do episodes on and shows on uh, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, sleazy cinema, and a variety of bonus episodes. Uh, we have a dedicated directors series. Uh, haven't done an Andrew Lau one. I doubt we will, uh, but uh, nevertheless, we have one such a series and all that good stuff. And go to the various uh, social media links at the top of the website, including to Facebook, where we also have uh, not only the page, but, but also the discussion group, where we post show updates and other fun stuff. So uh, come back in and it, uh, come in, Robert, and interact with us and uh, have a little bit of uh, relaxed, uh, friendly fun over at our uh, discussion group and you can also follow us on twitter uh, subscribe and rate us on itunes stream us on stitcher radio and spotify and i write about the variety of hong kong and taiwanese movies on my website sogoodreviews.com and i tweet over at that so good reviews so uh, resurrected or not per definition you you have a podcast you have new episodes uh, that you're working on at the time of recording they might be out the one or two of them so plug your recently uh, uh your recently um resurrected and perhaps uh for some discovered podcast they might have discovered your podcast today and they have an entire back catalog to listen to stuff so describe it for for the folks who might not know what you're doing yeah the show is called east screen west screen um it is where myself and various uh, guest hosts and producers over the years have come together to talk about films from hong kong to hollywood and just stuff that we really enjoy talking about. And you can find it over at Comcast.com. Excellent. Uh, well, we're going to take a music break, uh, listen to some fresh uh, uh, rocking, uh, triad brawling music from Young and Dangerous uh, uh, 5. I- I'll give them this, though. They're, they haven't been lazy and simply recycled the Young and Dangerous theme throughout every damn movie and every 20 minutes. It seems like they've either found another theme or had someone sing another theme for most of the movies because we don't get that um, classic uh, theme that appeared in uh, Young and Dangerous 1 here. So I'll give them that. They try to keep keep uh, the brand uh, fresh and not um, repetitive, you know. This goes to the music industry's integration too with 
the Hong Kong cinema, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, where a lot of these actors or celebrities had musical careers. And so every year they've got, you know, a new Cantonese album, a new Mandarin album that's probably getting released. And so they're going to highlight uh, a new song or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, and, and it feels like it uh, because we get that variety. So listen to uh, 30 seconds of that and we'll be back to discuss Young and Dangerous 5 from 1998. So uh, we'll uh, be right back. And welcome back. First review of this episode, uh, the continuation of the Young and Dangerous coverage. Uh, and we've reached Young and Dangerous Part 5 from 1998. And plot from the Love HK film review that's also uh, mixed with some review notes from uh, from Koso. So uh, I'll, I'll pasted the following. The results are mixed. Uh, Ikin Chang manages to carry things pretty well by himself, but without Jordan Chan. Yes, he's not here. The series loses its best actor and most compelling character. In his place, we have Chin Kalok as Big Head, an ex-triad who's dragged back into the triad game, game by his uh, former Hong Hing buddies. His mission? Defeat the Tong Sing's uh, best kickboxer in a Tong Sing-Hong Hing grudge match. However, there's more at stake than mere face. There's a cutthroat Malaysian businessman played by Paul Chun, who joins forces with evil Tung Sing branch leader Sito Honam, played by Mark Cheng, to help do in our Hong Hing guys. So it's Honam versus Honam in this one. No background as such, because uh, these movies uh, don't really have extensive making off notes and, and all that stuff. So we're going to head straight into the review. And uh, as for my short opinion... Uh, as you might remember, Paul and listeners, by Young and Dangerous Free, I was interested in following the lives of the characters because uh, the off-hours stuff was really enjoyable. That nearly disappeared in four, like the interest that I gained. But now I'm a bit interested again, a bit. Because the movie proves it can expand and reset the Y&D stage. Uh, but it does hurt that we don't get appearances from all the key characters. But... Although it does reset the stage and grows a little bit, matures a little bit, it does not follow through convincingly. Quite a bit of enjoyment is evident in the interaction uh, between the actors and the characters before any main plot conflict or drama has kicked in. That that stuff is pretty strong, especially as the cast gets stronger. Uh, the young ones and the veterans merge nicely in a professional-looking package, but when it comes time for Andrew Lau to elevate, to escalate... The movie kind of quickly peters out. I mean, a boxing match. <laughs> There's like no built-in tension for for uh, for the crescendo to to this tense tale. Suppose a tense tale. So I think uh, you got a good mature movie going on, but uh, it fell uh, flat by the end. I thought. So uh, let me throw over to you uh, for a short opinion. First of all, of a young and dangerous five. Well, here we are again. Yes, we are. Um... <laughs> Chicken's not here. Karen Mock is not here. Spencer the priest is not here it's a weird thing because there's it's like they're throwing in a few ideas with this movie that we haven't really seen before and 
from the outsider, it looks like they're just trying to see whatever they can throw at the wall and sticks. And I'm not sure how much of these plots are actually being pulled from the comics because I've never I've never read the 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 Hong Kong comics. And I do wonder if characters like, you know, Big Head, the rivalry they're having here, or Mark Cheng's character, if these are like quote unquote actual canon characters from mm. the comic storylines or not. Or if this is just stuff that they're kind of bundling together as they pull various ideas from various movies. But it does look a little bit slicker than previous films. I think kind of like Portland Street Blues, they seem to put a little bit more budget into the cinematography. The The, the colors are a bit more vibrant, especially when you go from this film to Tai Fei. It's like going backwards in some ways. The characters are, you know, you you see a sense of progress because Ho Nam, if you remember, you know, he's become a branch head. He wears suits now. He's running things now. So that level of progress, I think, is interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting to see all of the supporting characters come. You know, Sandrum's here. Anthony Wong's here. You get uh, Lee Su Kei and uh, others who you've seen before and it's interesting to see the things they're up to, the little subplots, but they don't spend enough time with them for my money. You know, if you're going to ask the question, you're at your fifth movie. So what do you do when you need to add some life to the fifth movie in your series? Well, if it's a Hong Kong series, you add Officer Lee, right? Because Officer Lee brings life to everything. Yes, and sir. I'm speaking specifically of Danny Lee, doing what he does as Officer Lee, right? I was like, are you going to give him his, his uh, alternate name? Because if he's not making the movie himself, he can't be Lee Sir. But no, yeah, he is Lee Sir, of course. And, and again, here too, I mean, is this like, are they just trying to have some convergence with Hong Kong cinema culture? Or is this an actual character that was based off of Danny Lee that was written into the comic and then is pulled out of the comic? Um, you know, maybe there's some fans out there listening to this who've read into the, you know, the Teddy Boy storylines and, and can answer this. I cannot. This is that's a bit a bit too much of a deep dive for, you know, the comic side, because the, these the, the comics never really appealed to me. It's not it's not the worst of the bunch, but it's also not the the most dynamic either in terms of filmmaking. A problem for me is also, although I got over it in the end, when I started it, I expected a 90-minute movie, 100-minute movie. And it's nearly two hours. And I'm thinking, you're not earning as much anymore. So why are you expanding the running time when you don't have as much juice left? Because they clearly did not in part four, which I thought was probably the weakest one. Well, weakest two is pretty weak, and then four was uh, second weakest, I suppose. But... At least for half a movie, I suppose there, there was a little bit more interest. I want, I, I, I was giving Andrew Lau a chance to uh, plead his case to see where he could take progression and maturity in characters and the expanded cast, how he could take the feel of them, the presence of them, in my eyes, because the new expanded cast, especially the veterans, that that's really, really enjoyable to to have here. Uh, and uh, there is a little appeal here following a series that gets the characters, I suppose, closer to their 30s. And um, it doesn't seem like they flash forward five, ten years each 
part. So presumably maybe Chan Ho Nam and his friends are in their mid-twenties, closer to their thirties. I mean, they're not street punks anymore. They've elevated themselves or progressed to the point where the next natural step is not to throw lawn chairs at your opponents, but you sign contracts. You do business, even if it's a bar. But in this case, there are other businesses in the movie as well. And uh, the Alex Mann character that appears here tries to um, further some wisdom that you you need to use your brain and not uh, rely on uh, violence. You have to be smart. And uh, there's no place for boys with a violent urge in this world. And that, uh, as force-fed as that writing may seem, I did really enjoy the opportunity that in theory presents that uh, the Hong Hing boys uh, be more respectable, I suppose. I mean, they're, they're going to be triads, but they're leaning towards a more respectable uh, line of work. So uh, the street is uh, a slightly forgotten thing. I mean, they, they reconnect to the streets a little bit because of the big head character comes back and you get uh, that uh, backstory of... Uh, why he wasn't in the movies and where he was and all of that. But I did like that initially very much, actually. And it doesn't sound like maybe the most exciting thing of the Young and Dangerous, the, the business edition. Maybe that doesn't <laughs> sound exciting, but I did, in theory, really enjoy that. And also to see appearances from um, characters who had not played a single role in these movies before. Danny Lee had not appeared as a cop that died. And then comes back as a different cop. It was not one of those businesses. And Paul Chu and Mark Chang are new to the fray as well. Carol Wong is a, um, a right-hand man to Mark Chang. So you get an expanded cast and it's seemingly an expanded maturity. And also my final point for now before I throw over to you. They're making Jerry Lamb do stuff, which I greatly <laughs> enjoyed. He's uh, He monitors like in the bar, I suppose, day-to-day operations and observes what needs to be observed. And reports to Honan but also can hold his own because uh and he wears a nice suit and he looks looks a little bit more assertive don't you think like they're giving jerry something he's not selling soft drinks at the fucking school like in part four you know what i mean like there's stuff happening now he's selling selling beverages for men (laughs) beer (laughs) but he's not a bartender but all of that I greatly enjoyed. So, I mean, I don't know if you remember that from your prior viewing that this is where they're taking them into more respectable territory. I suppose it doesn't seem as illegal what they're doing. Um, but um, what was your take on on seeing that happening this time around for the various characters? I think, as you said, the characters are at least portrayed as a bit older, a bit more mature and uh, having the the added responsibility. But if you're going into this looking for the part one, part two kind of street level uh, gang banging, I guess. I don't remember that. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to see, you're not going to see the wrong word, maybe a, a try at Olympics. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're not going to see, you're not going to see that here. The interesting thing I think for this film, and I don't know if this was a carryover because Portland street had done well, but um, they, they toned some things down a little bit. And the thing that stood out to me the most was, Mark Cheng, uh, who plays the main rival here um, as the character Sito Honam. Now, to understand it a little bit, his family name is Sito. His given name is Honam, which is the exact same given name as Ikan Cheng's character, which is Chan Honam, right? So they're both uh, have a given name of Honam. Uh, and, and that's a little bit of a point of rivalry between the two of them. But uh, 
in a little bit of a meta sense too, Mark Cheng's actual given name is Honam with the, the same Chinese characters as Chan Honam and, and Sita Honam. So for those who know Mark Cheng from, you know, his actual name, uh, Cheng Honam, there's a little bit of a sort of a meta twist there too, you know. But he comes in and uh, given the villains we've had up to this point in the series, I mean, you can't top Ugly Kwan. I think most people would would, would agree with that. And Roy Chung has been great both times that we've seen him. And I think they do a wise thing here by having Mark Cheng come in and downplay. Yes. So he's a lot cooler. He's a lot level-headed. And I think that, for me, that really worked. And and I liked him as a, a more level-headed and, and non-explosive rival. You know, he, he does, he's not somebody we've seen before, and he's the boss of the Tung Sing group. And whereas... You know, the our heroes, our protagonists are the Hung Hing group. And uh, this gets more confusing when we get into Tai Fei because the villains in or the rivals in Tai Fei are the Tung Hing group. So they're they're all kind of playing with names that are pretty close in, in the phonetic sounds. So I mean are those names otherwise in Chinese that are I don't know, hard names that are, that would evoke a certain thing you'd want for a Try a group. I mean, or those are. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's probably even embedded meaning that I, I don't even understand with my limited Cantonese. But like Tong Sing, Dong Sing, you know, as, as it's written out in Chinese, it's like uh, Eastern Star, right? Um, so it's the Eastern Star group, and there might be deeper levels to that because they might be based in the you know eastern part of Kowloon or or things that I don't know about things that are maybe even more brought out in aspects of the comics possibly so there's there's potential for that but i mean just from the outsider going in and hearing these names it can sometimes get confusing it's like wait what what group are they what gang are they but it doesn't really matter because i mean you kind of know how things are going to go by the end i mean i mean it's not like they put that 10 groups in the same movie and you have to keep track of everyone normally it's group versus group you know branch leader versus branch leader so it's, so it's normally quite easy to keep track of yeah yeah it's it's pretty cut and dry the sad thing though is that with this film i don't really get get a strong sense of any connection to young and dangerous four that's not a big deal because i don't really even though we just talked about it a couple months ago i don't really remember that much from young and dangerous four i mean i know that michelle reyes was there as a love interest karen mock became a teacher and I think her and Chicken were going to get married. And the fact we get no mention of those characters at all, if you're, especially if you're watching these pretty close, it, it's a bit jarring. I was surprised they didn't even make a verbal anything about it. Sometimes just to sort of uh, assure people, I suppose, that they, they exist. They, they throw in a throwaway line of some kind, but there was literally no mention of, uh, have you heard from Chicken? Well, he's, he's off, off and away. He's hiding. No, nothing. Uh, and then, granted, didn't he, like, win a a, a position after a very yeah. silly triad election in part four? He became a branch leader at the end of F4, so, you know, it's like, well, he kind of should be front and center with stuff that's going on. And I don't even think that they gave a, a single sentence or a line about like, oh, he's off in Macau or he's off in Taiwan or or anything to that nature. 
And I completely forgot about what happened with Michelle Reyes's character. I think she left, but I, I guess she's still teaching and she's still working with Karen Mock. I don't know, because they were teaching at the same school. <laughs> yeah. So you'd think that there'd be some connective crossover there, but no, they just they just want to get onto the new romance with the new character played by Shu Chi, um, who again a recycled actress from Portland Street Blues. If we go by release dates, these overlapped. Um, this one opened twenty fourth of January, apparently, in nineteen ninety eight, and played uh, um, through March, uh, a little bit into uh, March. Portland Street Blues opened in February, so these were at one point playing in the cinema at the same time, which was kind of which was kind of neat. Uh, this one, Young and Dangerous Five, made the money, and. Uh, Portland Street Blues uh, did not do as well as a Young and Dangerous movie normally did. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, uh, a way better spin-off movie is out there uh, and eventually would claim awards uh, featuring uh, two of the actors for uh, from this one. Uh, I, I do want to get back to uh, Shuchi a, a little bit later because I, I was wondering what you thought of um, the introduction of uh, Chin Kalok as uh, Big Head. In, in a role that uh, we haven't had referenced before. If so, it's been a throwaway line. But uh, he's a character that's been in jail for next amount of years. Essentially took uh, the heat for a crime, it seems like, for his brothers. And then comes out completely disillusioned. Wants nothing to do with the trial society because it hasn't served him well. He doesn't have a support system because he doesn't want a support system from the trial society as it comes out. And if I'm being honest, Paul, I really like Chin Kalok in this movie. He 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 acts in dual capacity. Uh, I should say he's the action director and an actor, and he had proven himself as being a very natural actor. If you remember, he had um, good turns in uh, Derek E's Full Throttle, and then in Ringo Lam's Full Alert. Yeah, and, and let us not forget uh, Mr. Vampire Saga Four. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, of course. But uh, I found I think he found his dramatic groove in uh, working for other filmmakers but, but you're right and i really like what uh, the sincerity and the downplayed nature to the acting that chin Kalok brings here you kind of believe that he isn't willing to get into the game that quick um and uh, granted then they fast track and this is not a spoiler that he's fine with that you know he comes back into the fold uh, but for a while it's a really nicely dramatic and underplayed and uh, played with a mature touch uh, by Chinkalock and handled with a mature touch by uh, by the uh, writer and director team here. It balanced the disappointment of losing a character like Chicken, although they're not the same in demeanor, because it was rather good uh, for for a bit. Uh, Chinkalock's introduction and um, his um, his arc, if you will, the, the the flashback arc and the current arc. What did you think of uh, Chin's uh, introduction and the character? purpose i suppose i think it was interesting um i do like him a lot as an actor and i think that you know if you look at his filmography in terms of action direction uh he's got so many well-known titles where he bring he really brings the action with this film though i think and and we'll talk about as we get into the sort of rocky-esque final act i i felt that it wasn't really as solid um for me i i you know, and part of the problem is because they do two things at the same time, and I think one outdoes the other uh, as a result. But for him, in terms of his own presence, um, he's always had a 
a good screen presence. Uh, I like seeing him on screen. And, and, you know, as I as I mentioned, going back to one of my favorite films of his, Mr. Vampire Saga 4, he can be good dramatically. He can be good comedically. And it's unfortunate that he's never really kind of uh, gotten a chance to shine um, as as bright as I think he could be in terms of being a central star. But he's been able to get a great amount of work both in front of the screen and behind the screen over the years. Um, and I think from here on out, I mean, this is really his first time working on the Young and Dangerous series. Um, but uh, as a, you know, as a character and as <clears throat> somebody who works behind the scenes, he goes on to um, work on some of the other films that follow this as well as um, Golden Job. So, you know, it's good to see him. His character, Big Head, I do think is a little bit kind of a callback to the Mark character from uh, Better Tomorrow in terms of what happens to him and, and, and kind of, you know, kind of his attitude. You know, it, it, it's one of those plot points that's kind of like written in there because it's like, well, we've got this character and how do we how do we bring him into this universe but establish a relationship? It works, but it also, you know, it's like begs some questions like, OK, so this guy was such a bud, right? But nobody thought to check in on him after eight years. Yeah, <laughs> like, it seems like he was a little bit abandoned indeed. But, you you know, you remember the last time Andrew Lau borrowed from A Better Tomorrow it was disastrous with the uh, restaurant shootout from Young and Dangerous 2. I was so limp. Yeah. <laughs> so at least like, OK, I've got a little bit of a handle on at least recycling a plot point. <laughs> so. Stock plot, plot point from, you know, after such an iconic plot point had done its thing on Hong Kong cinema, of course. But, uh, but yeah, um, um, he, he, he handled it a little bit, uh, little bit better without, without it being melodramatic. I heard no, no, like, breakdown in the street after having his uh, newspaper stall set on fire. No, no excessive crying. He, um, yeah, there was a little bit more dignity to um, to that character, and I think he, he's uh, he's quite good at that. In, uh, in in those movies, those full throttle, full alert, there are moments that that I recognize here of that quiet dignity, those acting beats that Chinkalock uh, can bring actually, and we, we, which is cool because he, he he'd been he'd been a stuntman and taken some falls and um, some heat over the years. I mean, in Heart of Dragon. He um, there, there's a scene where one character is, uh, he's kicked out of a restaurant and then bounces on a thing and then bounces on a car. That stunt goes wrong at one point and Chinkalock hits the pavement from a three-story building or two-story building, feet down, straight into the pavement, and they carry him off into a van, looking like he broke his broken both his legs because they have no ambulances standing by, <laughs> not in 1985. And then in Eastern Condors, he is a wonder stuntman that jumps from the boat that explodes uh, in the beginning of the movie. And the heat was so severe that when he came out of the water, he, he just pulled off his uh, skin like a glove from one of his uh, hands or arms. So he's uh, earned his stripes, Paul. Let's just say Yeah, that. no doubt. Another bit actor, supporting actor, I do like because he can bring the demeanor. The right uh, demeanor is actually Carol Wong as, uh, well, well, the boxing opponent in the grudge match overall. Carol is really effective at being a totally detestable asshole in almost every movie he does, man. I think he's, he's, he relishes the idea of, uh, 
wanting us to hate him. And it doesn't go down as dark roots as other movies he's done, category three movies or not, because he's done a few of those. But uh, that's an effective casting to have beside Mark Cheng, that he has a little bit of a growler beside him. You know, Mark Cheng is the calm and cool. But behind him, you you got the one that's, you know, ready, claws out, if need be. And Carol manages to sort of strike a balance uh, between, you know, not going over the top, but being ready on edge and um, having a glare that's effective for for the genre piece that is, this is. So really do enjoy um, the... It's, it's a fairly limited role, but... Um, it's recognizable stuff from Carol that um, I greatly, um, I greatly enjoy. So unless you have any notes on Carol, I suppose we should talk Shuchi as the new love interest. Um, one thing I didn't understand, and there's a few things I like and a few things I don't like, but one thing I didn't understand: she's supposed to be she's supposed to be Malaysian in this one, right? I'm not so sure if she's native Malaysian or she's just lived there a long time, but yeah, she's she's supposed to be either a diasporic Chinese who's moved there or somebody who's born there. Right. Because they, they they do a smart thing with the subtitles. At one point, she she's, she doesn't say love correctly. She says, well, they translate it as lop. And um, Chan Honam has to correct her. So I, I was just wondering if you picked up on any... That, that she was doing additional accent work other than doing her accent at Cantonese, which some people detest. I don't. But, uh, or was it just regular-sounding Shuchi to your to your ears? Yeah, as far as I could tell, it was just uh, Shuchi being Shuchi, which is always good. Which is uh, very good indeed. Um, so l- let me throw over to you because it's it's designed as uh, romance, but with some hidden layers uh, to it. And um, she's um, she's uh, an energy ball, I suppose. Um, she's not uh, just dropping to her knees to serve Chan Nam. Oh my God, you're so handsome. She's uh, she's playful and. Um, that's a make or break thing with uh, people when it comes to Shu Chi. But uh, how do you think uh, she integrated into um, to this one um, and uh, be, being the love interest and uh, being a character that we don't know uh, the full extent of until uh, closer to the ending? Okay. I mean, I know that Ikin is, or Noodles, is a leading man. <laughs> and with a leading man, you've got to have a leading lady, you know, unless it's Young and Dangerous 2, where the leading lady has been out of commission and you get to sit around and mope for a bit. But don't worry, we'll bring her back in Young and Dangerous 3, and it'll be the same actress, but somebody else, like we like to do with this series. And, you know, but then in 4, we'll bring you Michelle Reyes, and, uh, you know, you've been burned so many times already. So why not here in 5 bring in yet a new actress with a hidden agenda? And you're smart enough to see this coming, but you don't. You don't, Eakin. Come on, man. You've been burned so many times. I mean, there's more to it than that, to be sure. But I, I mean, w- with with some of the characters who are set up as villains in this, um, and and there there are more. I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Carol Wong is sort of the right hand heavy of Mark Chang's character, but you've got some others who have some plot to push forward. But it's so telegraphed, and it's just. You mentioned the running time, and one of the things I thought was just cut the romance here because it's not working for me. I mean, he's had so many romantic entanglements; it's almost like it's he's becoming the James Bond of the underworld suddenly. <laughs> and I, I wasn't interested in that. Like I said, I really wanted to see more time with the Hung, Hung Hing characters, and I know that that's expensive, right? Because now you're talking about 
you know, some of the bigger names, you know, your Anthony Wong's and your Sandrums, you know, the more screen time you give them, the more you got to pay them. So that's going to up your production costs. So, okay, fine. I get it. But I wasn't really interested in yet another romance subplot that I felt was going to go in a certain direction and it did go in a certain direction. And I never, I never found the chemistry as engaging here and maybe you're not supposed to because maybe smarty is supposed to be the one true love for all time of the chan honam character but i never felt that it was it was like it was just like okay it's it's convenient because of things that are going on and it wasn't a problem with shu chi or you know i mean she i think she plays her what i would consider her normally bubbly chu chi from from this era but it's not anything that you might not have seen in other films i just i didn't feel like i needed that i was more interested in other things that were going on i would have liked you know more time with chin kalak or you know give jerry lamb a romance i mean <laughs> do something different i, I mean I, i i do enjoy that she um Uh, but but it is flawed uh, this whole thing. But I do enjoy like that she hogs the room. She's a playful persona. She's a free spirit. She's totally adorable. She to- she's totally sexy. B- but then when it comes time to transition their the way they bounce off each other, the characters, uh, and then transition that into that we have feelings for each other as well, did not buy that for a minute. That that's part of the mix that that's grown even in a shallow way i did not buy that a minute for a minute even though i like both of these and and and, and by the way Ikin Cheng, who has to carry a lot more this time around even though he's been a lead actor but others have carried the load for him he does a respectable job um, doing that i can sense he's getting more comfortable as an actor and in the role so he's absolutely fine perhaps one of his better outings in uh, in the series but uh, this um Transitioning into romance, and then you you get to reveal that Chuki's character has a uh, hidden motive, and that's a bit bland as well. And uh, I, but by that point, I kind of was fine with the movie taking its time to build towards the grudge match, just hoping that it's good. It wasn't, but then then the I, I could sort of sit back and enjoy the interaction between the actors, um, old and new. In various settings, because I, I, for instance, very much enjoy the dinner scene with Helena Lawlan and uh, with Ikin Chang and Jerry Lam and Chin Kalok. Uh, it's um, just uh, the, the, the young and dangerous off hours, as I've described it before. Very happy to see that, but it's romance that was building in a scene like that too is not terribly endearing as well, and uh, even enjoyable actors can't erase the fact that uh, the plotline isn't building towards anything particularly special uh, or even a good repeat of uh, what we've had uh, what we had before and uh, so Andrew Loud doesn't get to to that uh, dramatic violent closure that this story should have a little bit of it just feels a little bit mild I mean we, we won't reveal who it is but one character out of the boys and I, I guess we're getting used to at least one dying per movie And yet another dies in this movie, and it's such a, such a woefully, both introduced and uh, executed uh, transition into that death scene, because and I guess this is a minor spoiler. It's for a character that is not front and center all the time to play crying and then 
a uh, counterpop ballad on top of that. And to make us care about that mixture is just completely lost and wasted, I think. Uh, it's uh, where the worst of Andrew Lau's efforts gets revealed. Uh, when it reverts back to, to this, I mean, even the triad brawl that happens, we get a street brawl. And it's as woeful as it's been in all the other movies. Just uh, more rock music, more counterpop music, and ding, 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 and everybody running off to each other. It's not fun, gritty stuff. It's not you know, dangerous street-level stuff. It's just very surface level uh, and not effective and uh, no no particularly dark violence and uh, so it is that sort of second hour or second 45 last 45 minutes that just unravels into a sort of big big old nothing because i i didn't enjoy the revelations of what was actually going on chan honam is duped and i didn't enjoy it the execution anyway or framing it around a uh, a public well un- Public for the underground, but public boxing match and one boxing match slash fight that only two people engage in and there's no audience essentially. That mixture I didn't enjoy because there wasn't any, I couldn't grab any fun tension, not even for like a basic genre piece. Uh, it was just sort of, yeah, okay. We had a confrontation and it was surrounding a boxing match. Okay. And then the branch heads did a thing too which was enjoyable because we got the cameos, but they did a thing too. They were playing puppet masters. Okay. Apparently, I don't know. <laughs> I was really indifferent towards the end after having enjoyed a very professional and um, sometimes mature building block for the Young and Dangerous Universe that didn't, that didn't result in something effective. Plain and simple. Corny was one of my lost notes. Like, I wasn't looking for this rock and roll flavor. This is now corny. So what happened? <laughs> well, Andrew Lau happened. Manfred Wong happened again, uh, but but uh, by no means a waste wasted uh, wasted time because of the goodwill that some of the sections do feature. The second hour is problematic for me. It, uh, that's where this goes into anonymous territory. But by no means, as you said, the worst entry. No, not not at all. Uh, so um, let me throw over to you. Uh, anything else you want to mention during the second hour? I mean, w- was the running time a problem for you? Was it too long, or you you stuck with it? Um, but uh, what did you ultimately think of how they built towards the finale? And uh, you know, was there any tension for you there as the conflicts turned a bit more deadly? Yeah, it was. Uh, the running time was a bit taxing, I would say. Not not to the point where I wanted to walk away, but there were a couple times throughout where I'm like. Mostly, mostly in the romance scenes, I think, where I'm kind of like looking at my watch going, okay, let's get on with it. And with regard to the character who uh, ends up uh, biting the bullet, you might say, um, you know, since, since we don't want to spoil it here for those who've never seen this, let me just say this. It is the equivalent of South Park's, oh my God, they killed Kenny, you <laughs> bastards. Why, why does he come back in Born to be King? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that as a surprise. <laughs> but th- th- this actor, this actor, <laughs> has, has a, this particular actor has a reputation. Like I said, they're throwing different ideas out there. They first they uh, they've got this. You know, it's they're trying to be international. You know, they've done this before by doing some filming abroad. This time they jaunt over to Malaysia. It gives the series a sense of expanse, which is fine. Um, they introduce these characters from Malaysia. The business seems bigger, which is great. Um, it gives it, gives it that sense of, you know, being more global, which is fine. 
But I think at the same time, it doesn't know what it wants to do. So there's this part in Malaysia, they're, they're running a cruise line, you know, I'm expecting at one point the love boat theme to start rolling out, you know, and they're doing gambling on the cruise. So I'm like, hmm, is, is this going into like God of Gamblers territory or, you know, where is this leading? But then, you know, by the end, no, we've gone into Rocky mode and there's training montages and big boxing match. And as I said, unfortunately, despite, you know, Chin Kalak, his his very strong presence as an actor. And also, I don't know if he was responsible for the action direction with regard to the boxing set pieces or with regard to the parallel fight that ends up happening with the boxing match. But I think that was a really bad decision because one takes away and undercuts the other. And what I think ends up happening is that the parallel fight that ends up going on at the same time as the boxing match is for me actually a bit more dynamic than the boxing match itself, Mm -hmm. which just didn't look as good despite having this big set and an audience and all the things that, tend to go with a boxing match. But at the same time, the parallel fight that's happening is happening in a very dark space. So it's, I wouldn't say it's cheating, but it's using film tricks to kind of get by at some times. So you can't always see the action as clearly as what's going on in in the boxing ring. I, I guess they thought on paper or maybe on the, what, if they did a very quick storyboard for this kind of thing as they're plotting out the, the the shots and the choreography. However they did it, I guess they thought it look, would look good on paper. But I think in execution, it's, you know, it's it's just too different. And one ends up outshining the other. But even that's not, it's not the best fight scene you've, you've ever seen. It's not really that engaging. It's not that dynamic. So, and then by the end, of course, these things have converged into a, a single space. And they're, Again, I kind of liked the chemistry between uh, Ekin and Mark Chang and some of what's going on because you've got this thing going on. You've got all these people around them and there are things that are happening and there are bits of Mark Chang's character that show through that I really, really liked. And I would just wish we could have gotten more time with him, more because most of the time with him, it's it, he's in the face of Ekin Chang. And that's fine to sort of establish the character, but I wanted more downtime with him. I really wanted to, to learn more about him, about, you know, what makes him tick, more of his motivation. Because for me, he was probably the most interesting character of the the this episode of the series next to Chin Kalak. And again, like with Chin Kalak, I, I wanted more time with him as well. So Yeah, Mark sometimes uh, was asked to hog the screen. Uh, whether raped by an angel or the peeping tom or other movies and it's really nice to see him downplay that because uh, downplayed here because uh, he, he is a good actor johnny toe used him to good uh, effect in election two i thought um, and always been a very handsome actor and he has grown into his looks and then of course he was cast in war did you remember that? He was in the Jet Li Statham movie. War. Was he? I don't remember. Yes, that. Well, he that, was. that was a better forgettable movie for me. Um, he was, but Mark Chang was in it. <laughs> so it's like, hey, that, that's uh, I enjoyed that uh, decision very much. Um, I don't know if he spoke English in, in the movie, to be honest, but uh, he was in it somewhat. So, you know, he, he didn't just open the door for the leading man, a la Edison Chen or anything, but uh, he was in it for a bit. But um, it was nice to see him... Um, have, have this uh, uh, frequency to him but um, 
a few more scenes would have been nice to maybe get some crack in the exterior you know maybe to see his frustrations but then he when he's out and about he's very good at internalizing things and uh, putting on the demeanor that he does put on if i could just share a small side anecdote about war that was a film that was we did as a movie night in hong kong with myself and ross chen and kevin ma and some some other people in the yes asia and uh, love hong kong film movie group that we all went and watched together. Normally we go watch Hong Kong movies together, um, you know, whatever was coming out new for a given week. But we went to the Queen's Theater, Queen's Cinema, which was this small, old, traditional uh, Hong Kong cinema over on Hong Kong Island. And it was the last, quote-unquote, technically somewhat Hong Kong-related movie because Jet Li was in it that was showing there. Um, And we went there the last, and they were getting ready to close it down. And so we decided, well, we're going to go watch War there. And we're going to take all the posters when we leave as well. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the the movie because of that. I don't remember anything about the movie except that it was the two of, you know, the two big actors. I don't even remember Mark Chang was in it, unfortunately. But I remember that movie because that was sort of like the closeout movie for um, that cinema, you know, just one of many of the more traditional Hong Kong cinemas that have been closed over the years, unfortunately. And now that includes the dynasty as well. Yeah, we, uh, it doesn't last forever. That's for sure. Let me just throw out three more final notes. Oh, oh, oh by the way, I like the the surrounding uh, cast of uh, YND regulars. I like that they don't make it that much of a fuss about them appearing as well. They don't get it like a, there's no slow motion entrance for Sister 13 or like a big entrance for Tai Fei or Ben Hon. They, they're just here. And I kind of found that enjoyable that all of a sudden Sister, Sister 13 is in this for a bit and uh, together with Ben Hon played by Vincent Wan and uh, Anthony Wong is here for a couple of scenes um, touches his face a little bit doesn't pick his nose that much but he's here, and that's very cool. So, so it's almost comforting to to get a little a bit of a Hong Kong um, side presence here, uh, even though they're not they don't do very much. They don't have a lot to do with the main thrust of the plot, and therefore they're not in that many scenes. But the supporting side to it all uh, was very comforting and fun to see. And I do like Danny Lee, by the way, as he he's in a role that he can play in his sleep. But uh, he brings presence too. He he brings us. He knows what he's doing, so that means it's solid. And to hear it all in sync sound as it's been since part two, that adds a flavor to it. That's uh, very comforting and uh, very professional and uh, and uh, likable for those uh, sections. Um, and also, this is uh, Helena Lawlands' second dementia role in 1998, unless Bullets Over Summer was in 1999. That was her award-winning role, but uh, at least two years in a row, he, she she didn't play any scary, scary dairy uh, grannies or anything. She played uh, grannies uh, that have dementia, so um, that's what they got into this one. But it's a charming little uh, little cameo for uh, for Helena, so I like that. And uh, also Frankie, mm, who was the boss of the boys in the first one, uh, died, came back as a different character and was an enemy to the boys. And now he's back here, in a cameo, for the flashback. So, <laughs> so for all you Frankie Mm fans who can't keep uh, track of the fact that he died, different, back, same. That's what you get in this movie. So, 
Welcome to Hong Kong Cinema. And it's all crisscrosses. Uh, this whole uh, casting business, uh, I suppose. Uh, you know, we we I haven't seen Born to Be King yet, so uh, we'll see if they do anything with Frankie. Like maybe he's connected to Mark Cheng. Who knows? As a matter of fact. <laughs> so, but at any rate, that's uh, the end of my notes. So I, I'll, I'll uh, uh, give you the floor if you want to share anything else. Uh, well, the I guess the last bit of a uh, little bit of trivia we can throw in here is that uh, this was a Lunar New Year film, of all things. Uh, it was released during the Lunar New Year period. End of January ran to the beginning of March in 1998. And they actually have a big Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year uh, feast, banquet, um, in the first act of the film. And you actually get a New Year greeting from... Uh, uh, Lee Sir himself, uh, where he says the traditional sort of a gong hei fa choy as, as he turns to the screen. So a nice little, not not your typical kind of New Year film, although I guess considering how big uh, the series had become and the sort of glossy look that it has now compared with the earlier films, they had that in mind going for that uh, that big blockbuster release window as it were but still earned less than its uh, predecessors um so um uh, m- maybe it reigned the lunar new year at that point with its 12 million who knows but uh, still the the numbers were dwindling uh, that's for sure one of the things i did forget to, to talk about with this film um was i wanted to tie it back because you and kevin recently talked about uh, romeo must die and election uh, as an episode and in the election coverage you had talked about, um, you know, how that was a product of its time for the post-post handover period. Um, and here, too, you with this film right at the beginning um, with the Alex Mann character, you get a little bit of a an inkling in that direction when he sort of talks cause, talks about because the handovers, you know, already a good um, six months behind them. Policies and, and the way people are talking about things um, have started to to shift more in that direction. So not to say that this film is anywhere, anywhere near on the level of, uh, you know, the election film, but, uh, some of the themes and ideas are, are being set that, uh, they'd later go on and integrate more heavily into election. Yeah. They're throwing some lines in there that might be quite weighty lines, I suppose. Uh, doesn't he say at one point, uh, Beijing is for sure watching us right now. Yeah, and that's, yeah. That's the way of life, essentially. Um, it seems to be the summarization that uh, things have shifted, uh, even though Alex Mann's character still feels very like he has a forward momentum and doesn't uh, and seize opportunities as long as you use your head, yeah, as he says. It's not a bad cameo, actually. I, I do like that he comes in there as the sort of windy Yoda of it all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So he's he's established uh, that role well, I think. Uh, so I'm glad they brought him uh, brought him back. As a matter of fact, uh, so that's another veteran presence that sometimes just hogged the screen. And it's nice to see him. Um, yeah, where's his spinoff movie? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> can go to Thailand and uh, Thailand and be married. So as for availability, then um, for Young and Dangerous Five, but uh, a bit randomly, you know, Young and Dangerous Three. It got a newer Hong Kong release. I think it's on Blu-ray, but the rest of the series were covered. Otherwise, uh, they they haven't been reissued. They they are out of print, and that includes Part Five that was put out by Universe. 
what, what I got uh, instead, but it's probably not legit, despite the label being legit, was this uh, Young and Dangerous 1 through 6 DVD box set released in Malaysia by Speedy. You know, I went through um, parts 1 through 4 just to see what the transfers were like, and they still had like the Maya logos and the transfers are from the cinema prints. But uh, for part 5 and 6, uh, they are the universe transfers with the optional subtitles and uh, better transfer quality. But, but they cut out the universe logos, you know, those unskippable minute and a half universe logos that were always on their DVDs. That's not here. So I don't think it's properly licensed, but if I can't get any other version, then I might as well get one version that replicates the original Hong Kong DVD rather than some cruddy vcd transfer on dvd or something like that um, so uh that's how you um can get all the movies in one go uh, so search ebay for young and dangerous box and what have you and uh, you you'll find out but uh, be aware that it, uh, it it might be a bootleg as a matter of fact so uh, let's uh, take a another uh, break uh, we might uh, i haven't decided yet i, I decide this uh, afterwards if we're gonna throw in a promo break or find some uh, class music from the legend legendary taifei to tide you over for 30 seconds or so but uh, regardless uh, we'll be back to review the the second spin-off movie of this um, coverage, uh, which is the Anthony Wong Taifei spin-off movie from 1999. So how does that fare on a low budget and all of that? Well, we'll uh, tell you all about it after the break. Welcome back, people. Uh, we are going to conclude this episode with the review of the legendary Taifei from 1999 and plot from the Hong Kong Movie Database, uh, a spin-off from the Young and Dangerous series that focuses on the story of the character of Taifei, played by Anthony Wong, or more accurately on Chin, played by Alex Lam. Chin is a boy who is on the lowest rung of the Ting Song triad ladder, but he has a cocky attitude and an ambitious boss, the character of King, played by Benny Lai. Chin and Fei cross paths when Chin and his friends start to make trouble at Fei's sauna. And after being taught a lesson by Fei, he vows to kill Fei, the little boy. Meanwhile, Fei gets a call from an ex-girlfriend who has cancer and is dying. She reveals that Fei has a son who he has never told him about. Guess who? It's the boy. It's Yin Shin. So as the pair struggle to accept the news, Shin is drawn deeper into King's dealings whilst the double cross brings Faye closer to his son. Blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> that tells you a little bit of what I thought of the film. You you just sort of know going into it uh, that something grand isn't planned for you here. But at 81 minutes, you know, and a fondness of the character from Young and Dangerous 2, it's easy to get through. But it's also completely unremarkable as a movie. It's got rampant melodrama. As this is structured as a family story, with uh, the nose picker character, I suppose. Uh, plus, there's some triad conflict and violence of no particular note or effect, and then it's over. You know, it met expectations, but it's not a necessary film at all. You know, uh, Portland Street Blues, it ain't in terms of thoughtful depiction and expanded character depth uh, and as i said in the prior review i think anthony 
if it's given what is given, then he can't elevate it to any elite status. So he he does fine here, but I'm, I miss the wild side of Faye because I also think, and this is my question to you as well, I don't think this is that much of a prequel story prior to the events of Young and Dangerous 2. It seems like it's, it is set off the five in 1999. Or do you have any take on that or you didn't care? really what it, where it was set yeah it's uh uh who knows <laughs> it's it's post it's post long hair taifei at some point yeah um although i guess you know technically if they are sequential i mean this is coming after uh young and dangerous five so i guess his his horse racing venture went bust <laughs> <laughs> yes so it's definitely a step down like i said in terms of the cinema uh, cinema cinematography and the look and the budget that went into this thing for sure you sort of knew right that this wasn't going to operate at a grand level as such i mean did that sort of adjust your expectations going into this well yeah i mean i look at the director here um uh, kant lung who if you look at his filmography i mean he's worked as an assistant director on some stuff that is uh perhaps better well-known feel 100% to the lucky guy. Her name is cat even stuff, you know, that's a bit more in the margins that I think you and I both like things like under the rose, but you know, as a director, what does he get stuck with a lot of sequels, you know, things like Chinese express Two, violent cop Two, sexy and dangerous Two, <laughs> dragon, the master Two. I mean, he's not getting, uh, choice picks and I'm not saying that that's reflective of his skill as a director it's just sometimes you take what you're given and what you're given ends up building a, a resume that makes you get more of the kind of stuff you're being given so this is I think a case of that where really I mean you've got a script and the producer here is Lee Su himself um, you know, brother K from the, the, the series up to this point. So he's trying to have a hand in some of this and you do get Anthony Wong. I mean, he's not phoning it in. He's being Anthony Wong. There are moments of this film that I do enjoy. And so for me in the scope of Y and D films, it's nowhere near the bottom, but it's, you know, certainly not at the top either. And I think that there are things here that I gleaned from it that make me want to see more of certain things. But there's also aspects of this that don't feel necessarily like a young and dangerous film. Um, And I think we'll probably get into that as we talk a little bit more about some of the characters that this film revolves around. Yeah, I mean, it's indicative of perhaps of what was going on at the end of the millennium as well with Hong Kong movies in general. Uh, Not a lot of big budget productions uh, a lot of cheap ones to to make sure the industry is uh, kept afloat i mean it is a wong jing workshop production so and say what you want about wong jing but uh, he certainly cranked and put productions out there and make sure there were there was movies at at one point you know cheap or not Um, uh, but uh, you know i i knew this was going to be uh, a movie i wasn't going to like praise akin to portland street blues or whatever but but you go into it you ask yourself what well, what is its intent are we going to get a somewhat detailed backstory is it going to be some continuity with the universe i know Eakin is not going to turn up but are they going to 
connect uh, to the windy universe in some shape or form and it's only 82 minutes so it's low budget tried stuff with Taifei and uh, if they had not gotten Anthony I'm sure they could have made this movie in some shape or form anyway but they did get Anthony so that, that's absolutely good and uh, sometimes when these movies have a low budget they shoot on on location whether exterior or interior and um, camera work is very loose and that can in good filmmakers hands add a sort of gritty documentary realism I suppose this one is a case for it's all looking pretty flat and cheap um, uh, the various club scenes where uh, you know the loose camera is uh, sweeping back and forth to uh, for us to view these uh, young triad rascals they, they all look high as well so uh, they, they, we get a little insight into the lifestyle I suppose and then Benny Lies King he recruits what looks like shy timid boys with their backpacks you know it looks like they're out of school to do his bidding uh, but but then there's no election type of ceremony for these uh, low low on the ladder drug dealers or anything i think they drink a little bit of wine and then they're in and and that could also be an insight into how this part of trial hierarchy uh, work you know it's hitting a few spots there that's like okay develop this and you might you might do something and, and you got some actors here that you recognize from the time uh, you know triad actors circa 1999 samuel lung is in this movie um and the character of alex lamb plays people would know him from king of comedy do you remember his role in king of comedy i do not he's the guy who was was stephen chow you know teaches acting to uh, to various people including someone who wants to tra- stand up to triads but they bring in alex ah, lamb yes. and they send this guy in to threaten triads and it goes bust and at the same time stephen chow is watching this uh, little boy take a pee and it's uh <laughs> distracted like by that <laughs> yeah i remember that and, and it's an hysterical <laughs> role like uh, alex there is putting on uh, a very exaggerated persona such and uh decent enough little actor he's trying here he emotes if you will so uh nothing wrong with his um effort i, I suppose and, and 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 when you watch taifei initially I, I do like some of the beats even though i miss I, I still miss his uh wild persona but i do like the beats where he, he's uh he seems like a hothead but he can read he can read situations for instance when king is um uh, with uh, his uh, girlfriend or or the girl he wants to marry and they, they need to present themselves in front of her father but also in front of Taifei and King puts on this like fake sincerity I think Taifei can read him from miles away and that's I enjoy that uh, you, you can't BS that character that easily uh, and Anthony's bring, bringing a certain amount of energy but there's only so much he can do as well because um while they're giving him a dramatic story for this one it, it isn't that refined as such and uh and and then of course with the exterior shooting of the street uh, it has no real visual impact i'm sure it's fun to see hong kong circa 1999 for you but there, there's no gritty impact as they shoot dialogue scenes on the street again the camera sweeping back and forth as as uh, the kids talk and they sell sim cards on the street and you know they, they tick up little Again, uh, I used the term before, but the day-to-day operations for these characters—they uh, they might not be, you know, criminal rascals, but um, they are connected to a triad head or a branch leader. But um, it's never an interesting story, though. Looking at the evil group of kids, um, 
you know, uh, and and it goes into melodrama, which I'm sure we'll talk of. So, you know, all these tropes, all this content, uh, confrontations, and uh, the settings that we see—is that all interesting in the uh, hands of this director, or, or is it more of like, boy, this is low budget and it's not—we've seen it before and it doesn't match the level of what we've seen before, kind of. Well, I mean, it definitely doesn't match the level. I mean, even comparing with the first Young and Dangerous film, this looks like technically it's a bit weaker in terms of the visual aesthetic. And even in in Young and Dangerous 5, the credits, they give us this montage of the old films. Uh, And here they just have the kids jumping and do freeze frame in the air. (laughs) It's a Wong Jing style, man. (laughs) Yeah. but I mean, yeah, it, I like the Taifei character. And like I said, I don't think Anthony is phoning it in with this role like he very easily could have. You know, I think he's a working man's actor and he says, I've got a job. I'm going to go do the job. And he does it. Teresa Mack, Mack Kake is here as his, they refer to her as, as his wife. I don't know if they're married or if it's a sort of a live-in situation. I liked the chemistry between them, the two of them a lot. Um, she seemed to be able to like, put him in his place from time to time. And I really wanted so much more of that. I wanted, again, like with Young and Dangerous 5, I wanted more of that day-to-day stuff between the two of them, you know, um, them together, them talking about stuff. And and the way that she kind of was just very matter-of-fact about, okay, uh, there's, you know, this kid here, and uh, there's this this old girlfriend, and this is the situation and I'm just going to run with it. I, I really liked that dynamic. Um, I would have been happy if they would have expanded more on that and less on the focus on the kids. When they're following the kids around, you know, Alex Lamb and his little group, it's a bit like Spacked Out and or Gangs, you know, some of the earlier Lawrence Lau films, but way less engaging. It's certainly not. I mean, there's a, there's definitely some current era messages there about raves and drugs and you know what kids are getting into but there are films other films of this period that i think are on a technical level that are superior i think i think rave fever came out the same year you've got other films that are sort of focusing on the drug of the time the 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 thing drug of the time which was popular for this era i think fing's raver uh, comes out a couple years later there's nothing really dynamic about any of that the kids themselves, I mean, you don't get a lot of background on them like you do in something like uh, a spacked out or even gangs. So you're not that invested in them. Um, they're just kind of like, well, we're we're in this like very low level entry with the Tong Hing Society as opposed to the Tong Sing Society. And um, you know, so even King himself, who's kind of like I guess he's like the 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 mid-level boss of this particular group. Someone called him, by the way, on the Hong Kong movie database in the review section of the evil twin of Ikin Chang's. Yeah, I mean, they, they, he, they, he, they give him, he's got the hair of sort of like Young and Dangerous One Ikin, and uh, he's pretty good looking, and, and I think they're trying to put in some of the mannerisms there. But in terms of a villain, I mean, in the scope of all the Y&D villains, he's probably the least impressive because he's undone by his wife and an answering machine. A, ma- a magical <laughs> answering machine, I'll tell you. Let's it's get like to that. Technology. 
curse you. I mean, I I, I do agree. There's no uh, amidst the kids who we do follow, and I mean that's backed out um, uh, reference and uh, the reference to the youth astray type of movies uh, that could be argued to be there but there's no appealing performer energy despite them trying to bring energy running around butt naked in the shower stores for whatever reason at uh, face sauna and uh, then they're put into a deadly conflict and manipulated and uh, but but there's no like punch to that um, to that story and uh, i think uh, what, what one major pitfall they fall down into despite trying to create a personal story for Taifei it just is laced with a complete insecurity in terms of how to present moods because uh, when when there's tension there's cheap tense soundtracks on the soundtrack Uh, they cue it up just to make sure everybody this is a tense scene got it and now, and when the melodrama happens, and when 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 the at least on paper on surface level sincere melodrama happens, they just bring in the cheap piano for that. It just laces the scenes with that. It even seems to uh, uh, take over the the volume of the dialogue, and I think that that shows really the, the level that this director works at. And I've seen a few of his movies and I've not been impressed. Chinese Midnight Express 2 is a follow-up to a solid prison movie. But that one, I think I wrote in my review don't make movies ever again. So that was, and he did. So, uh, so he can't really uh, navigate a sincere sort of straight natural drama. He just uh, puts the scenes into this manufactured mode. And you, you're right, Theresa Mack is a major stand-up decently present uh, she she is someone who watches from the outside of the father-son conflict and can be rational and can, can be direct looks very good on screen it's, it seems like a very good counterpoint to taifei when taifei's irrational sides do rear their heads that's a dynamic that deserves a, a, a fairly good spin-off movie on its own you know 90 minutes of uh, taifei and Theresa max uh, characters at home yeah, we'll call it we'll call it romancing Taifei. Exactly, <laughs> and uh, I would be into that. So, um, uh, I mean, even Andrew Lau could use the low body to create create some sense of style and some type of atmosphere of you know making drama, making tried conflicts. But the, the problem here is too that this is not only insecure, but it's also plain and cheap. And uh, when it needs to manipulate in a plain and cheap manner, you you lose a lot of sincerity and you also lose the valid effort that little Alex Lamb puts forward. I mean, I'm not taking for granted that it's easy to cry on screen, but that, that, that contrast between, you know, he's sad that his mom is dying, but he carries, you know, rage and a grudge against Taifei, you know, the last person he wants to see as a father figure. But um uh, then the melodrama becomes so cheap when the way it's presented uh, technically in, in post, not when shooting. It might have looked very good shooting and felt good, but uh, it just cheapens the movie to that sort of $10 budget feel that you get from uh, one of these movies. Uh, it's not uh, good enough. Um, and and it kind of sh- it's a shame that wasted emotional effort by young, young actors are you know feels corny there's even a shared crying scene between all the kids in the gang who all have parental issues 
so so it uh, it infects everybody like a virus like one starts to cry then another starts to cry and another has a story and another also has a story i didn't know my father either i miss my father too i miss my mother too blah 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 that's just uh pretty amateur level to be honest uh even if uh your intent is valid so that 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 didn't uh raise any eyebrows and uh and, and the content overall is pretty dull to be honest uh, uh even uh the trial conflict that happens and uh, i don't care if we spoil that uh eventually here in the discussion because uh, i have a few questions about the magical answering machine i suppose uh, that uh that is in this movie unless i forget unless i'm forgetting how answering machines worked but uh perhaps we'll get to that uh so, um, any thoughts on that? The the melodrama, as such. I mean, I gather you didn't shed a tear watching watching this uh, this piano score take you away as the uh, as, as the emotions were playing out on screen. <laughs> it's a, it's an also ran kind of uh, story, especially the thing that gets the kids into trouble. You know, the the betrayal, if you will, that ends up happening. I mean, none of that is is really new. I think the dynamic between Taifei and his son, Shin, Alex Lam, is interesting. And they probably could have spent more time on that. But even there, we've seen we've seen similar storylines. I mean, going back to stuff where I'm, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, uh, All About Along or My Dad is a Jerk or or things where there's like, Maybe a kid is known or, you know, there's divorce or something, but suddenly it becomes like a father who doesn't know the child, you know, kind of thrust together and the the growth that they go through. We get none of that. Here. <laughs> I mean, they don't even try. They're just like, OK, right to the right to the plot of, you know, the the being drug mules and. And, and sometimes it has a little bit of raw energy as, uh, you know, he is emotional and Taifei, you know, shows his human side and then uh, Alex Lam switches to his um, his more frustrated angry side and and those are raw little beats but they're, they're there's it's not explored in a in a competent manner or anything so that's why i say the, the effort i think is uh, unfortunately wasted because it's not uh, tied together very well as they put the movie together even as we build to sort of like the final confrontation that in and of itself is also it's already been done in what six other movies by this point and we've, you know, what do you, what do you have? You have, you know, going to confront the villain and the accusations and everything going on. And so let's call the Hung Hing boys in, except we're calling the C team of the <laughs> Hung Hing boys. So we get cameos by um, Brother Yu, who's played by Lee Do Yu, Lee Do Yu. And uh, of course, you've got Lee Shu Kei as Brother K, who shows up. I had to look up to the extent they've been in these movies. They've apparently been in all of them. Yeah, for the most part, they've 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 shown up. Uh... I mean, Lee Suk too. I think t- turns up, but sometimes the when when Simon Yam held, held a session when he was alive in the yeah. series, but they've never been front and center as um, characters that walked beside the boys constantly. Right? Well, the in the first film, uh, Lee Suk gets beaten up by Eakin and gang. <laughs> there's a there's there's a scene where they. Um, uh, there's an altercation. He's like sitting outside at a at a cafe, and and they beat him up, 
And but then after that, it's like buddy buddies through the rest of the series. So for some reason, I remember that being Shing Fuyong, but that that might just be a wishful thinking. I don't know that they. Maybe up. it was. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm juxtaposing the two. Um, but I think I'm pretty sure it was Lee Shu But anyway, yeah, I mean they're there in. I mean Brother Yu is actually, and Lee Shu are both in in five. You know they show up at the banquet. And um, are, there's a scene where there, you know, Lee Shu goes in. He's got some some plot going on with Alex Mann and uh, and one of the other Hung Hing characters. Uh, and you know, they're they're not in focus, but it's it's nice that they're there and that there's this sense of continuity of character, um, and that the actors are still willing to come and do it, even though they're not getting major major roles. So, but of course, we we're not getting. Anybody beyond that in this film? Look, everybody, we got chicken. <laughs> <laughs> there's no budget, you know. Um, I'm guessing. Yeah, so there's no Sister Thirteen. Um, we don't even get a Jerry Lamb. It's fine. It's. I mean, it's. I like. I appreciate that they give it at least a semblance of continuity, and that they get a couple of them to kind of show up and show that yeah, Hung Hing is a group that sticks together and supports each other. But again, that. And that that sort of ending confrontation and the way it's the way the villain is undone is so underwhelming. Well, well, well let me ask you this: I, I I never owned an answering machine like that 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 recorded messages on tape. Okay, so so he has like a, a the tech section of podcast on fire. So if <laughs> if if you call and uh, the answering machine turns on, the message starts playing, but you do pick up after that point. That way. The call would be recorded if uh, the if the tape had already done its thing, and it see uh, and and that's the undoing of the villain that his phone calls are recorded on the answering machine, meaning that either that answering machine records any call or they always pick up the phone after the answering machine has started. We're not at home right now, so please leave a message. No, I'm here. No, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I. Answering machines. What is that, old man? <laughs> well, it's a, My dad has a digital answering machine that it can continue recording the conversation um, if you set it that way. I'm guessing at this point, you know, 99, turn of the millennium, that they still had answering machines. I guess they were still tape at this point, yeah. but were complex enough to where you could set the setting to either, you know, stop recording when the call is picked up or continue recording if the call is picked up yeah. so hey technology for the win read the user manual king <laughs> read the user manual but i think they do establish that his wife is setting that because there's a scene where she's like going and putting the tape in and and setting something because she wants to see if he's fooling around i i think that i think so i think that's a setting that she enables or at least they try and show something to that extent that she's trying to check if he's fooling around but 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 still still doesn't they don't even talk in code over the phone they just plainly say exactly what they're gonna do over the phone like yeah. uh, like uh, bring the bananas to the place and i'll deliver the, the dorian uh, and then you run away like chickens like no they say they say exactly what their the, their plans were and they play that back and boom Everything's restored and Taifei is not uh, to blame anymore. So yeah, it's pretty pretty shoddy, pretty pretty you know seen it before and pretty shoddy. And still, I mean, he's not wasting his uh, his effort. Uh, Anthony Wong is enjoyable to watch, and we got we, we get little Taifei 
uh, glimpses, but I do miss his DJF attitude about things. And where he seemed reckless, but was always in control of how he navigated the world. I mean, there's a great bit where it's not the finale, but um, earlier on when he is confronted, probably when they when they think he's committed a murder, and then King comes in like a minute or two later, and Taifei turns to him like, "Oh, I'm gonna believe that you just arrived." Clearly, you were here all the time. Don't do the theatrics with me. Essentially, what he's saying. So, and and I like those little bits. And Anthony is fun as he does those. But um, Young and Dangerous Two's Taifei and that constant demeanor is just a disgusting effing slob. But he's good. I miss that. And it's a shame we didn't get more of that. But um, it is what it is, and not particularly good either. So, and I think the one thing that as a viewer, as a viewer, especially if you're going into these in order that you'd probably be expecting that I was expecting that we didn't get a structure similar to what we got with Portland street blues. So I originally had thought, okay, this is going to be a movie that's going to go back and at least through flashbacks show some of the, you know, how Taifei became Taifei, but it's none of that. It's, it's just another day in the life of modern day Taifei. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that requires maybe a knowledge of what has happened before and uh, therefore you have to, you know, know your, your your young and dangerous movies. And maybe these filmmakers didn't want to, didn't have time to uh, plan out much continuity other than who's available. You know, <laughs> at least you care, you're here. So do you know anyone who would be willing to create some continuity for us? Uh, so at least they got two cameos uh, and some spin-offs did, did take the time to do that. I mean, the grand example is probably Once Upon a Time in Tried Society that playfully told the story of how Ugly Kwan became Ugly Kwan and then they just uh, messed with us, as it turned out. And it was marvelous how they messed with us, uh, that <laughs> you know that we're going to feel sympathy for that character, which we do, and then we don't. Because that's the structure of Once Upon a Time and Tried Society for its comedic purposes, uh, which I still find to be um, some, some of the best uh, sidetracks that the uh, windy universe has uh, offered up, even though it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a piss take, but uh, enjoyable nonetheless. So um, there it is. And the reason we aren't doing Once Upon a Time and Tried Society, I, I've talked about them solo before, but I might, I just might have... Paul rewatched them and do a little mini review himself because I enjoy hearing other people talk of, especially the first one. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Try Society 2 is not a Young and Dangerous spin off movie. Uh, completely different um, characters and um, all of that, but it's essential anyway. So, I mean, if you're up for it, then uh, we might uh, squeeze in like mini reviews uh, for the subsequent episodes of uh, those, uh, those two movies. Sounds good. But uh, at any rate, uh, I've uh, ran out of notes uh, in terms of uh, the Taifei adventures here. So uh, anything else you want to say? No, I'd say, you know, if you're a completionist, uh, try and track this one down. Watch it for Anthony Wong and Teresa Mack and then lament the rest. 81 minutes was good. I'm glad they didn't uh, stretch it out to 90 just because 90 is a nice film <laughs> film running time, you know. So 81 was very, was very nice. Uh, no added montages and counterpop. They could have added in nine extra minutes of nose picking. Yeah, exactly. In in montage form over the credits as well. So I watched a movie the other day um, that um, 
was 85 minutes long, but the movie ended at 80. The credits run for maybe two minutes, and the rest was creditless continual montage from um, from the movie. They didn't even cut. They just let it run until they reached 85, and then they were done. So uh, there is that uh, padding too. Uh, but uh, as for availability, therefore, of the legendary of the legendary Taifei, uh, Wide Sides or possibly Fito Mobile put out a DVD with burned in subtitles. But that disc looks to be a bit elusive now, um, and, and they did a VCD shortly too, and, and it is the cinema print on DVD, so it's not this anamorphic widescreen deluxe uh, edition of the film. Um, the film is included in one of those Young and Dangerous and its related films slash spin-offs bootleg collections you find on eBay. Uh, simply as The Legendary. If you watch the listing, it just says uh, The Legendary. It is definitely not the licensed, but if there are no other options and you get many films for your buck, then maybe that's a fun set to buy. Um, even if the presentations might be dubious of, uh, of the other films, they might not even be as good as the Hong Kong DVD counterparts. But... Um, it's one of those collections we've talked of uh, that uh, both appears as it's uh, it's got like 12 movies, but also sometimes it's paired off with CDs. So uh, they may, maybe they've done a good job compiling the relevant music from the windy universe. So it's just yeah. Or if you hold on for a hot minute, it might just be out on Blu-ray any day now. Because everything's coming out on Blu-ray that's so obscure. It's hard maybe to Maybe they to can get to the series first of all and not just have young and dangerous free as uh, on its own island on dvd and blu-ray land and uh, get to the rest of the series and maybe get to once upon a time and try society and things like that and uh, i don't know if the portland street blues has been upgraded but i know that, that i know for a fact there's an hd print out there of portland street blues on uh, probably like chinese vod because if you google image that you get uh, splendid looking screen captures but with uh, embedded uh, logos from uh, you know, either TV or VOD service um, in China or something like that. So it's not like uh, the prints are lost. But um, I don't think Taipei is um, first in line for remastering. But uh... if you are somebody that's really actively looking for this and you're, you know, trying to scour secondhand sources like eBay or even if you somehow get over to Hong Kong and you're you're looking through secondhand shops, the DVD I have is actually sold new as in a vcd looking case so even like the early young and dangerous films where they uh, the the maya releases came in cardboard boxes but there was a crystal case inside the cardboard box that comes out so if you take that out by itself it's like it looks like a vcd case when i bought this there was no cardboard box at all it was just shrink wrapped in a case and i thought it was a vcd at first and when we were talking about doing this show i was like yeah, I think I've got that on VCD because because it's only in that case. It's with my VCDs, but um, I popped it in. I was like, nope, DVD. And you were like, like, no, I've lost the second VCD. God damn it! Oh, it's a DVD. <laughs> you may see it on eBay. You know, somebody selling it secondhand as just a case. Check clearly if it's the VCD or the DVD because you may, it might look like the VCD, but it might be the DVD. So good point and, and it actually looks sharp for what it is like a fairly sharp cinema print the subtitles are crystal clear and all of that so it's uh, not this badly converted thing or anything so um they, they did okay and to be honest that label they might not reek of like being a good dvd label but they they were an excellent laser disc label their quality 
transfers. They, they had quality transfers on Laserdisc. Uh, better than most Hong Kong companies. So you got like uh, Once Upon a Time in Tri Society 2. That's by um, it, it's Fito Mobile on Laser and probably Wide Sight on like VCD. It's a really good quality for for uh, for for the format. So uh, there is that. At any rate, we are gonna we are gonna conclude the coverage of Young and Dangerous because we've made it this far. And uh, thanks to splitting it up. I uh, feel very motivated to uh, to get her done, and uh, so we have Born to Be King left. We have Young and Dangerous the prequel, and uh, we can pair those up with a spin-off or two. We have uh, our eyes set on talking of Born to Be King and the Chicken spin-off movie made in two thousand, so it's a bit later, called Those Were the Days. We got that lined up, and uh, then the prequel combined with something. We'll we'll see uh, uh, what uh, uh, what parts of the well we haven't tapped. Uh, so um, maybe there's a Lee's UK, uh, Chan Yu and the character of Chan Yu spin-off movie that we haven't located yet. So maybe we'll get to that. But at any rate, uh, we are uh, going to do that in the future. So look out for it. But in the meantime, uh, all your for all your podcast on fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com, and uh, back catalog of episodes are there, and social media links are in the show post, or you can just click the handy buttons at the top of our website uh, for full access uh, to all of that. And uh, that's me plugged out. So I'm going to throw over to Paul for a plug of, uh, for his uh, podcast that hopefully has a, a new episode or two up by the time you hear this. So where can I locate your show? It is uh, East Screen, West Screen. You can find us over at concast.com. Excellent. And all the uh, podcatchers out there and in, and uh, wherever you get your fine podcasts. That includes that fine podcast. So, uh, But uh, in the meantime, we are done for this uh, continuation of the Young and Dangerous retrospective. It, it wasn't the plan. I mean, if you remember, I probably said at the tail end of part one, like, I'm done. I'm so over this. And then like a few months pass, well... Why not? What the heck? Glutton for punishments or glutton for punishment. You know, the quality hasn't been great, but I've managed to find enjoyment and motivation reviewing them as a series that I lodge the sort of basic storytelling in my brain so I remember it from part to part, but it's also decent enough motivation happens because it was such a cultural touchstone at the time. It hit so big and expanded in various interesting directions as well. So that's enough motivation. And also, to be perfectly honest and sincere, it's a uh, it's a joy discussing these with you because you bring your knowledgeable perspective, but you bring your perspective having seen these and now re-watched these. And um, so it, it works out, even if the quality of uh, the movies as such doesn't inspire, you know, a weekend of... I'm going to binge one through six. Yeah, <laughs> I know that's not going to happen anytime soon. But uh, I'm happy that this is uh, on the record, yeah, so to say. So and uh, and we're not done. We're going to put some more more stuff down. So um, uh, uh, so as long as uh, you're not uh, uh, tired of it, if Taipei didn't uh, kill your motivation, and then I think we're good in terms of uh, concluding this thing. No, certainly not. I look forward to doing the rest. And even if we, you know, whether we make it or not, uh, it is worth pointing out that uh, Young and Dangerous Reloaded is out there, sort of the reboot that they did in 2013. And uh, Alex Lamb actually got a pretty big role in that. Oh, holy hell. And I know uh, it's reviewed on the network, but not by me. So uh, that might be uh, the final uh, 
part of the puzzle as we uh, review the prequel. So good. Uh, I, I'd forgotten about that completely. So, But at any rate, we are done. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Kennedy. With me was Paul Fox of the East Green, West Green podcast. So say goodbye and take us out. Bye-bye. <laughs>